Now, today you're getting an internet sermon. You know, every once in a while we have what we call sermon requests. This one came from the internet. And like I said, it's if you're a visitor here today, it's you're going to get hit with double barrels, and that's okay. Because this is God's holy word. Now, I have given you the scripture of Acts chapter 8, 1 through 25. Because of time, I'm going to be nice and not read the entire part to you, but I would encourage you to read it all this week. I'm going to start off with where we're at here is the stoning, right? The stoning of Stephen just happened. Stephen stood up to the Sanhedrin. They took him out and killed him, stoned him to death there in Jerusalem. And then we pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who were scattered preached the good the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they paid close attention to what he said. For shrieks with impure spirits came out of many, and those who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, I'm going to stop here at the moment. You can keep reading. We'll come back to it a little bit later. Great joy was in the city. This event in Acts chapter 8 that tells of Philip preaching in Samaria resulted in the evangelism explosion and it contains three puzzles that many folks today in this our world will just overlook. What are these puzzles and what can they teach us about our walk with Christ? Now, people have created puzzles for centuries. There are crossword puzzles and jigsaw puzzles. Now, this is my weakness, crossword puzzles. You've got to be able to spell before you can do crossword puzzles. But there's also number puzzles. Now, I love these things. Maynard got me hooked on them you got to go one through nine in each box and not have it overdone. And I'll sit there and just... My mind works on numbers much better than letters. How many of you are number people? How many of you are letter people? See, we're about evenly divided. It's a wonderful thing to do. It keeps your mind sharp. Now, the Rubik's Cube came out about 1975 when I just started to work for Kmart. I, if you're a new visitor here, I used to work in retail before. And we, we would have kids out there in the toy department messing up the Rubik's Cubes. So we would actually take them back to the brake line and people would take their box knives and peel off all the stickers and stick them so that you had solid colors because could, we couldn't figure out how to fix them. And you couldn't sell them if they were all mixed up. Then... We started figuring how to fix them. There's actually a pattern of numbers. If you've never studied it, this so many turns this way, so many turns that way, and it puts it all back together. There is a system to fix them. Now, the better the puzzle, the more difficult it is to solve. 
And by that standard, the holy grail of such puzzles is Solomon's seal. This is a modern version of They have versions all the way back to ivory. You got 13th century. They got them carved in the Orient. You have to get this metal ring over here without untying it. It's Solomon's seal, or it's also called the impossible Japanese puzzle. Because unless you know the secret, it is impossible for you to solve. I found a YouTube video that explains the puzzle and the solution. If you type in the Solomon's puzzle or the impossible Japanese puzzle, you can find out how it's done. And it started off, this video that I watched, started off telling about a Japanese man who spent 10 years of his life trying to solve this puzzle and never could solve it. Apparently, he didn't know how to do a Google search. But did you notice that unless you know the answer to the puzzle, it's almost impossible to do? There's only one way to solve this puzzle. And you need to know that secret in order to solve it. Now, once again, this metal ring here has to go over here on this loop without untying the strings. Look it up. It's a lot tougher than it sounds. In our scripture this morning, we are faced with a set of three puzzles that are riddles in our scripture text today that are almost impossible to figure out unless you understand what lies behind them. Unless you understand the secret of the story, the story makes no sense. And before we get into that, let's take a look at the story itself. The early church had been in existence for just about a year or so now, and it was and it grown dramatically. There were thousands of believers. They'd been through the three hours of darkness. They'd seen the risen. They were believers. Everything was going extremely well. But then the church meets serious opposition. Godly Christians came everywhere. And a godly Christian named Stephen has preached before the Sanhedrin and his message is so powerful and so in your face that the Sanhedrin became furious and they dragged him out of the city and stoned him to death. The stoning of Stephen began the great persecution of the church. One of the catalysts of that persecution became a young Pharisee named Saul. We know him as Paul. Saul became Paul. Who saw this Christian group as a threat to the faith of Israel. And thus made it his mission to destroy it. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 tells us that he began to destroy the church, going from house to house, and he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Facing prison and even death, the Christians scattered and ran away to find safety. One of those men who ran away was a godly deacon named Philip. 
he went into Samaria and began to preach about Jesus. Hang on, let me fix this cable. It's not quite, could you all hear that? I Hopefully it won't fix it anymore. Now, he was so powerful and convincing in what he preached that the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did and they all paid close attention to what he said. And they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Shortly after that, we're told that when the apostles who were in Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Who, when they came down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as of yet, it had not fallen on them. They had been baptized in the name of the Lord, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. When Peter and John laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now that is found in Acts chapter 8, verse 15 through 17, for you to read this week. That's essentially the story. Now there's... There are other side issues to consider, but basically it sums up what we're talking about this morning. And in this simple story, there are three puzzles here. Okay? Where are those puzzles? That's a good question to ask. And I'll get there. Probably I wouldn't have brought them up if I'm not going to get there, right? The first puzzle is what right did Philip have to preach? He's just a deacon. He's not even an elder. He's never been to Bible college. And he's not even ordained. It wouldn't seem in this modern world that he would get into a decent pulpit and be able to preach about Christ if we go by modern standards. And now the second puzzle is, why didn't the Holy Spirit come upon these new believers? And this is I thought that's what happened when folks believed and repented and confessed Jesus. They were baptized. That's what scripture taught. Of course it teaches that. But this time, it seems they needed the apostles to come down and lay hands on them for the spirit to come upon them. What gives? What are we to learn here? It's here so we can learn something. Now, the third puzzle for us sitting here today is why couldn't Philip lay hands on these folks when they received the Holy Spirit? Why did they have to wait for Peter and John to do it? It would seem Philip was more than qualified to do something like this. We're told him he's a man filled with the Spirit of God Himself and He is able to do all kinds of cool miracles and wonderful miracles and healings. But apparently, 
he couldn't do this. Why? Now, we're going to look at that answer today. So, when it comes to puzzles like the Solomon Seal or the Rubik's Cube, I can be fairly lazy. Yet, I Remember, I told you we just took our box knife, peeled off the little stickers, and put them all back in the right order, right? After a while, you gotta, when you got all these cubes to fix, you got to do something, right? If I can't solve the puzzle in a reasonable time, I'll figure out some way to get it taken care of. I'm not interested in spinning the dials on a Rubik's Cube all day long. So eventually, I just set the puzzle aside after I, you know. Anybody else here get kind of lazy on puzzles when they get really tough? Am I the only one? Okay, well, yes, I do cheat, you know. Now, uh, hear me out. Lots of so-called Bible scholars are like that with scriptures they can't figure out. The implication of the passages like this are, like the one we're looking at this morning, disturb them. If a passage of scripture doesn't fit into their theology, they just put the issue aside and embrace the theology that they're comfortable with, and they just move on. They don't care to explore what God is teaching. They just put it away. They don't care. The first puzzle in these scriptures is, what right did Philip have to preach? He's just a deacon. He's not even an elder. He's never been to Bible college. And he's never been ordained. There are a lot of churches here in America and around the world would never have let him nearest their pulpit. He's not qualified. In Acts, well, let me back up a little bit. That's actually a common problem back in the days of Jesus and a common problem here. So we're going to explain this problem. See, in Acts chapter 4, verse 7, the Sanhedrin confronted Peter and John. Remember this? And they arrested them for preaching. And the first question out of the Sanhedrin was, what they asked him was, by what power or what name do you do this? In other words, but what right do you preach? They were not Levites. They had not any business in... To be a religious leader by the Jewish rules or how they understood the order. They weren't Levites. Only a Levite could be that. And things haven't changed much in 2,000 some years. There's a lot of churches out there. If you don't have a diploma on the wall, you can forget about getting into the pulpit. They want men who have master's degrees or PhDs and at least a Bachelor of Arts, right? They don't mind if you're being bored as long as they got a piece of paper on the wall. That's not quite how things work with God. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he said this, When I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliant speech of wisdom. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation 
We're not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and power that you, that your faith might be not based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now you can read those words for yourself if you want to read. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5. In other words, Paul was saying, I'm not here to dazzle you. I'm not here to impress you. I am here to get you to see Jesus and him crucified. Now, most Wesleyan churches, we're a Wesleyan church. Philip being a preacher isn't really that much of a puzzle. We're very comfortable with him having a pulpit. In We figure if a guy loves Jesus, if they know the Bible, if they're not into heresy, if they're able to speak without biting their tongue, right? We'll let them preach. Why? Because we're not here to dazzle or impress you. We're here to get you to see Jesus and him crucified. Now, the Wesleyan Church in their discipline, their rules of order, actually has a position called a lay supply pastor. When I started here in 1999, that's how I came to this church, as a lay supply pastor. So the first puzzle is, who has the right to preach? And the answer is, God uses any man or woman who loves Jesus enough to talk about him. That's the blessing of God. Now the second puzzle we're going to explore today is this. Why hadn't the Holy Spirit fallen on these new believers? It's actually a wonderful question. Now we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this question. And on, on this one and on the third one. You know, the third puzzle, right? So let's take you to Acts chapter 5, no, chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because they had not fallen on them. But they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Or the Lord Jesus, depending on your, your translation. When they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. The bulk of the Bible teaches that when folks believe, repent, confess Jesus as Lord, and were baptized into Christ, that they re- receive the Holy Spirit. That's the bulk of the Bible teaching. In fact, that's what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized for every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, had the folks in Samaria believed and been baptized? Of course they had. When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they had believed and were baptized both men and women. We're told that in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. They had believed. They'd done what the book of the Bible teaching said. Hang on, let me see this. According to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, check this out, write it out later, right? They should have received the gift of the Holy Spirit at that moment. But they didn't. 
they had to wait. The puzzle. Now, let me digress for a minute. Can you be saved if you don't have the Holy Spirit? Well, Romans chapter 8 verse 9 tells us that anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. You cannot be saved if you don't have the Holy Spirit. And I've encountered folks, especially ministers in town, right, who understand the concept and they realize the Bible teaches that you cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit. And so when they read this event in Acts chapter 8, they confidently tell me, they, we actually, they like to fight. They'd say the Samaritans had not been saved before Peter and John laid their hands on them because the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them. And I love those folks, but they're just lazy theologians. They are. They're just lazy. Because they haven't bothered to read like Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 where it says, In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of the truth and the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And we, until we acquire the, that position of it, praise be to the glory. That means until you die and get your inheritance. And the book of Ephesians teaches that our believing in Jesus gets us sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. Now, if the Samaritans believed in Jesus, of course they had. The Bible says they had. And if they believed Philip, then he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and they believed and they were baptized, both men and women, They had believed and they were baptized. According to Acts chapter 2 verse 38, they should have received the gift of the Holy Spirit because they had repented and they were baptized. And according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, they should have been sealed by the Holy Spirit because of their faith. So, What's going on here? I told you, this is meat and potatoes teaching, right? We're going to look at that in a couple of ways. It all has to do with the laying on of hands that Peter and John did that day. And before we get too deep into this, I want to stress that nowhere in the Bible is it ever taught, ever written, that salvation occurs when somebody lays on hands. It's not biblical. What we do see in Scripture is that the laying on of hands accomplishes three things. One is ordination. That's Acts chapter 13, verse 3. After fasting and prayer, the leaders of Antioch laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off to a mission field. The laying on of hands by the leadership essentially said that Paul and Barnabas were trusted by them and they were being endorsed in their ministry. Now, there's healings. That's chapter Acts, or that's Acts chapter 9, verse 12. We have many of that examples, but I just picked one, right? Paul had seen a vision of a man named Ananias. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Coming down to lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. 
laying of a, on of hands is part of healing in Scripture. And, and there's a few cases in the early church, as was in the case of imparting charisma. Charisma. It's a root word where we get the root word of charismatic. Charismatic is a Greek word transcribed, given by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And you'll find that word in places, the original word in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12. These are gifts from the Holy Spirit. Imparting charisma. Hmm. Now, Paul, the apostle, Bull, wrote to Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the charismata of God in which through you, through the laying on of my hands. Now, you can read that in 2 Timothy 1.6. There's limited points of that in the Bible. Timothy received a special gift by the Holy Spirit when Paul lays his hands on him. In Acts chapter 19, Paul, on his way to Ephesus, when he encountered some believers, and they, they, and he asked them if they'd ever received the Holy Spirit. But these folks had only been baptized into the baptism of John the Baptist. They had never heard the new message. And so Paul taught them about the cross, and then he baptized them right there, and they were baptized into Christ. Paul laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to have this gift. Paul laid his hands on them, and they experienced the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now understand this. Christians in Samaria were saved before Peter and John showed up. They were believing, and having been baptized into Christ, they were saved. So the second puzzle is, why hadn't the Spirit fallen on these believers? Now, the third puzzle for us sitting here today to explore is this. Why couldn't Philip lay hands on these folks? Why was it only the apostles could lay hands and receive these special gifts? Now, first, a bit of history here, because it makes no sense unless you get a little history. And you guys all know I love history, right? History and archaeology just makes, just gives me wit. Oh, I love it. See, the Samaritans were half-breed people. They were Jew and Gentile. The nation originated when the Assyrians captured the ten northern tribes in 732 B.C., and deported many of the people, and then they, they imported others, and they intermarried with the Jews, and the Samaritans actually had their own temple, their own priesthood, and openly opposed fraternization with the Jews. Now, John 4, chapter 4, verse 9 tells us, can I bottom line this to you? They hated each other. The Jews would not go into Samaria, they'd walk around Samaria. They could have gone right through it, but they would not step foot on their soil. And the Samaritans did the same for the Jews. Philip was chosen as a deacon. You can read about that in Acts chapter 
chapter 6, verse 5, just like Stephen, and he grew in ministry and became an effective evangelist. The Apostle Paul calls Philip an evangelist. That's in Acts 21, verse 8. That's his title, an evangelist. God directed Philip to evangelize in Samaria, an area that had been prohibited to the apostles. Now, hang on. The apostles were told they could not evangelize in Samaria. And that is Matthew 10, 5 and 6. But Philip could. Both John the Baptist and Jesus had ministered in Samaria, and Philip entered into their labors. That's John 4, chapter 4, verses 36 through 38. Samaria was held for Philip. The word preaching in Acts 4 means to preach the gospel and evangelize, while the word preaching in Acts 8, 5, the original word, means anointing as a herald. Philip was anointing as a herald. Philip was God's commissioned herald to deliver the message to the people in Samaria. Philip not only declared the word, but he also demonstrated by performing miracles. Now, actually, throughout the Bible, you can look, it was the apostles who did the majority of miracles. But yes, both Stephen and Philip did signs and wonders by the power of God. The Bible records this. However, the emphasis here was on the word. That's what Philip was there, giving the word of God. And he gave people notice to heed the word of God. And they saw the miracles, and they believed in the word, and they were saved. Nobody was ever saved by a miracle. They were saved by believing. The gospel is now moved from the Jewish territory into Samaria, where the people were part Jew and part Gentile. It's moved. It's making a move. God in his grace, now this is important, God in his grace had built a bridge between the two estranged people, the people who hated each other, and made believers one in Christ. And soon he would extend that bridge to the Gentiles, including. Even today, we need people like Philip, men and women who would carry the gospel message into pioneer territory and dare to challenge ancient prejudices. Into the world, the whole gospel, every creature still needs it. God's commissioned us to reach the whole world. So here's Philip starting a church, a brand new church in Samaria. Peter and John are sent to lay hands on these new believers, not only so they could receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but also so the church would be tied together. Can I repeat that? So the church would be tied together. It was necessary for the two apostles, Peter and John, to come from Jerusalem, to put their hands on the converts, to impart upon them the gift of the Spirit. Why? Because God wanted to unite the Sumerian believers with the original Jewish church in Jerusalem. He did not want two churches 
that would be perpetually in division and conflict that existed for centuries before. He was ending the conflict between Jews and Sumerians. Now, Jesus had given Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And you know, that's recorded in Matthew 16, um, verses 13 through 20, for all to read. Which meant that Peter had the privilege of opening the door to faith to others. He opened the door to the faith to the Jews at Pentecost. His job was to open that door at Pentecost. And now he's opening that door to Samarians. And later, Peter would be the one who opened that door to the Gentiles. That was his job. He had three doors to unlock. Now, it helps to remember that the first ten chapters of the book of Acts is a record, it's a period of transition from the Jew to the Samarian to the Gentile. The the first ten chapters are a transition. God's pattern for us today is given in Acts chapter 10. The sinner hears the gospel, believes, and receives the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And once you understand Acts chapter 10 is the transitional period, 1 through 10 is the transitional period in God's plan, and starting with Acts chapter 10 is the climax, everything solved. It had to switch from the Jewish religion to Christian religion. Now, as we start to close, the purpose of puzzles is not only to entertain us, but to challenge us. Any of you ever got mad at a crossword puzzle and threw it in the trash can? It's to challenge us. They weren't intended usually to be easy or simplistic. In the same way, the Bible is filled with numerous puzzles that we need to consider to make us better servants of God. These Bible puzzles are intended to make us dig deeper and understand more about God. To make us grow as mature Christians. God has inserted the the occasional puzzle to challenge and intrigue us so that we do not remain baby Christians. No offense, you aren't supposed to have milk all your life. You need some meat and potatoes. To grow daily with our walk. Now this morning we've looked at three puzzles in Acts chapter 8. And while these puzzles are important to understand, they're not nearly as important as the biggest puzzle in all scripture. The entire gospel message is contained in this one big puzzle. And once you understand this secret of the, the big puzzle, everything else in scripture falls together. What is that puzzle? Well, one day in a Sunday school class, now this is a true story. I actually know who did it, right? One of the class members said, I just can't understand how God could love and forgive some people. And then that person, it did not happen in this church, so don't panic, it happened in another church, right? And then that person went on to tell of all the sins that they would have trouble forgiving. Their attitude was harsh and unloving. You ever known anybody like that? The teacher of the Sunday school class paused for a moment and said, there's something else that amazes me more. 
More than even that. There are times I can't understand how God could have forgiven me. See, that amazed him. Because he had recognized the biggest puzzle in Scripture was the amazing grace that God has shown to him and to each one of us. In fact, there's a hymn written by that name by a man who realized it had been the most very wicked and most hateful man in almost all the world until he turned his life upon Jesus. And he wrote the song that shared that puzzle. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, and now I'm found, was blind, but now I can see. There are people out there who will say the Samaritans were never saved, but they didn't pay attention to Scripture. We're not designed to be apart. We're not designed to be fighting between each other. You may not believe this, but the church isn't supposed to fight like children, right? Sometimes we're called to grow up. Everyone is welcome to hear the message, but we have to remember these these key words. Repent and acknowledge who God is. See, your sins were no worse than Isaac Newton. Or not Isaac Newton. What's his name? Help me out here now. Somebody, I just got the wrong name. John Newton. Have you ever just had a name pop in your head, the wrong name? John Newton. He was a slaver. That means he sold people into slavery. And God forgave him. Did you know he became a preacher? Now a bit of trivia for you. There are 1,001 verses of amazing grace that's registered with the CCLI. And the last verse that we sent when we've been there for 10,000 years actually came from a different hymn called New Jerusalem. That wasn't the original, the ending wasn't what John wrote. Trivia, check it out. Don't you love puzzles? See, we're blessed that God's word is a puzzle. To the cross is a puzzle. To the unsaved person, it's foolishness. To the saved person, it's grace. Your price has been paid for. Your entry to heaven has been paid for. Your adoption papers have been signed. All you have to do is ask for them. Love can be shown no more than somebody to say, I want to adopt that person. When that person still hated the person adopting them. So, the mystery of the Holy Spirit was to join the church together. To join believers together. And to make new believers. Now, you have an opportunity this Thursday to bring people to church for something that's non-threatening. We're going to have a concert. It's going to be wonderful. What day is it on? Thursday. What time is it? 7 p.m. Why do we do this? So that you can bring an unsaved person or somebody who's not walking right with God to church under a non-threatening thing. They're going to hear a gospel message by song. If it doesn't work one way, use another way. That's the puzzle. Let God do his work in their heart. So you have a way to invite somebody. Now, are you going to take advantage of that or are you going to waste the chance?
Is there somebody that you know as a neighbor or friend that needs to know the good news that you can't reach? Find a different way. Bring them to a concert. It might even cost you a coffee afterwards. Okay? A coffee's not that expensive if you go to McDonald's. You go to Starbucks, what are they, eight, five, six, seven, eight bucks? That's more. Go to McDonald's. If you get senior coffee, it's only 96 cents. But why would you waste an opportunity to share the gospel? It's going to be a wonderful concert. It's one of the puzzles that they need to have their hearts work through. And each piece of the puzzle saves them. Why do we do this? To save people from the pit of hell. That's why we do all this. Will you answer the call? Invite somebody. Now we need to close in prayer and then there's some wonderful goodies at the coffee bar. If you're a visitor, what happens next is we will have prayer, we'll have a song, then you're invited out for some goodies. And folks, you know how good the goodies are. So let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, today we've investigated one of the mysteries from your Holy Word. And we've seen a possible answer. That you wanted to unite the church, not have a divided church. You wanted one people, one church. Those who call upon your name. Repentance is required. Claiming the love of your son is required. Acknowledging who he is is required. He has the living water of life. All might be saved. Our job is to reach him. And all God's people said, Amen.